Well, this is the Sunday school uh, time, and this is for July the 19th of 2020. And during the month of July, we've kind of taken a, a little bit of a different turn looking at what was uh, prophesied to the people of Israel when they said they wanted a king. And uh, no matter what Samuel said, and of course that was the word of the Lord, God was speaking through Samuel, and uh, they just wouldn't be deterred from it. They wanted what they wanted. Have you ever uh, had a little kid that uh, they are just bound and determined that they want to drink from the orange sippy cup? And uh, it's in the dishwasher, and it doesn't matter what you offer them or what you talk to them about or how, how better some of the other cups may be. They want what they want, and they're not going to be satisfied until they get it. God's people act a lot like toddlers sometimes. We get something on our mind, we get fixated on it, and we decide that uh, if I had this, I could be happy, and conversely, I can't be happy without it. Now, all of that is just pointing out our immaturity, because we have such limited knowledge and such a limited scope, we don't understand that some things we think are so important, like the color of the sippy cup, really don't matter. Really don't matter. They may be pleasing to us, but they don't really matter. You can get a cup of cold water out of any color of sippy cup, right? And the key is, if the little kid is thirsty, he wants a drink, give him a drink. But uh, he can't see the, the purpose and everything that uh, it might entail. Uh, he wants that one thing, that one color. We do the same kind of thing. I cannot be happy unless I have this. God, you've got to do it my way. There's a little bit, well, maybe a lot of arrogance in those kind of statements. And sometimes our prayer lives turn into not a, a pleasant relationship, getting to know God and having our heart changed to uh, match up with his heart and his will. But so many times we are frustrated because we've got a list of demands that we're making to the Lord. And kind of with the idea, I know we don't say this, but the idea is, God, if you really knew what you were doing, you would do it my way because I know how it really ought to be done. I, I would encourage you to stop and take a serious and thoughtful look at your prayer life and, and what is it? Is it just a shopping list of demands? Is it uh, uh, like a pouty toddler that you are just fixated on this one thing and no one can talk you out of it, no matter how unreasonable you may be? Or the fact that you can have whatever need it is you want to express, you can have it met just maybe through a different color of cup or something like that. I think you understand what I'm saying. And sometimes as we pray about things, we so often push and push and push and push and push and push that God may actually go, okay. And we think we've won a victory and it may turn out to be the worst thing that ever happened to us. And that does uh, not deny the sovereignty or the omniscience of God or anything like that. It just is... Him as our parent, sometimes sanctifying us, disciplining us, correcting us, let's put it that way, by giving us what we want, by giving us what we want. I can remember when I was a kid, there was a certain type of 
bicycle that I wanted. And I mean, I would not be happy with anything else. I already had a perfectly good bike, but I wanted another one. I wanted a newer one, kind of like, you know, we do now with cars and those kind of things. What's that old saying? The only difference between men and boys is the price of their toys. Well, I mean, you know, you start off young on all of this, and I had to have it. And uh, I remember taking my money, and uh, my dad was kind of keeping it for me. He was my, you know, the bank of dad, 401 dad or something like that. But uh, he finally agreed and said, yeah, you can do that, but that's going to mean there were some other things I wanted to do that you can't do those. Well, I, if, if, if I can't have this one bike, well, then I'll never be happy and none of the other things will matter. You ever been like that? And so uh, when I got it, it was so wonderful until the new wore off of it. And then I started thinking about the other things that I would like to do. And guess what? I no longer had the money for it. And I learned a lesson from that. And my dad taught me some things in that, that everything has a price. Everything kind of has a give and a take. You can't really have it all. And in order to get one thing, you have to give up some other things. Hmm. That's what God is saying to Israel in this situation. You want a king? Okay, I'll give you a king. But I'm going to warn you that in order to get the king and the benefits that you think you have to have and that you cannot live without, well, here's the deal. You're going to find that this is going to cost you far more than you actually gain on all of this. And he wanted them to be well aware of the price. So we just kind of start off by saying, be careful what you ask for. You might get it, and it might not be exactly what you want. Well, that's the way the elders of Israel were in this situation, and uh, it, they couldn't be talked out of it. So 1 Samuel eight, ten through 18, let's uh, read this again, okay? So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him, and he said... These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, security detail, and, his, uh, and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. And he will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants." And he will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work, to his work. And he will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you. In that day, in other words, uh, you have a king, and here uh, the the cry before the king is, "Long live the king!" 
And God just might even not only give you a king, but he might even give that king a long life and you don't have any recourse. And if that king reigns for 50 years, that's what's going to happen. No matter how much you pray about it, no matter how much you wish that that guy wasn't the king, that's the way it's going to be. And guess what? Kings are not elected, even though the first one was kind of chosen, Saul. But what happens? Usually their son, unless there's a revolution or an assassination or something like that, the son becomes the king, and then the son of that king becomes the king, and it just goes on and on and on. So as the Lord reminds them of all of this kind of stuff, he's saying basically, you want a king? I'll give you a king, but it's on you. You're going to own it. I wonder how many times that's happened in our nation where I know we don't have kings, but we vote for a president, and then we complain about the president, and uh, the Lord says, yeah, I'll make a change in eight years. But until then, you got to live with what you have chosen. So uh, that's kind of what's happening here. The immaturity of, of Israel, the selfishness of Israel is showing up. But even more than that, understand that God told Samuel, they haven't rejected you, but they've rejected me. So in order for Israel to do a thing like saying, hey, we want a king that can go before us into battle and that can make judgments over us and rule over us. You know, all the other nations have it. All they saw was we want what they've got. The truth of the matter is they were saying to God, your rule and your reign over us is just not enough. And so they're rejecting God. They're making a trade. So in order to choose the earthly king, they are rejecting the heavenly king. So let's uh, take these verses that we've just looked at. And let's just take our customary four things and uh, see if we can understand the contrast. What is happening here and why it is so very important. It's more than just, um, you know, kind of a... A spiritual thing as much as it is that and that's at the root of all of it it always is always is but here's how it manifests itself uh, number one notice in verses 11 through 13 you will be required to defend the king okay now that's not rocket science to think of course you're going to do that and of course Israel would want to do that you want to protect your leaders and you want them uh, to survive I've never wanted any president that we've ever had, even the ones that I would vehemently disagree with. I never wanted them to be harmed or kidnapped. I never wanted them to be assassinated or anything like that. That would be the worst thing that could happen. And so in this situation, what are, what are they talking about in here? You're going to be required to defend the king. If somebody uh, invades your country, you can't look the other way. You've got to fight for the king. If the palace is under siege, you've got to fight for the king. If you are, uh, are your son or somebody like that is a guard for the king, running before his chariots or surrounding it like secret service, they've got to fight for the king and they're vulnerable in all of this. I think that's kind of a, you know, duh kind of thing. Of course you would do that and you would be glad to do that. But understand this, when you have God ruling over you as king like they did, he didn't have to have security details, did he? 
Now, would they fight for the Lord? Yes, under the command of the Lord. But understand this. When you have God as your king, God may send you into battle, and he tells you the battle's not yours, it's mine. Now go fight. You're going to go to battle, but you're going to win, and here's how you're going to do it. Now go fight. And you had the heavenly sovereign king who knew what the enemy was going to do before the enemy knew what they were going to do. He knew how long the battle was going to last, what resources would be needed for the battle. He knew the strategy, everything, and the outcome. All of that is already known. Under an earthly king, you have to follow him. You have to go by his strategy. You have to live out of his resources, and he has no real idea about what the enemy's going to do. He might suspect, and he might be a good strategist, but he doesn't really know 100%. He doesn't really know the outcome of everything. He has good expectations, but he doesn't know like God knows. See, there's a big difference between God sending you into battle and an earthly king sending you into battle. Now, it's also interesting to note that as we contrast this, you're going to be required to defend your earthly king. But notice that in uh, God's rule and reign, God was the one who actually defended them. In the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, this is God speaking to Abraham as representative of the Jewish race and the nation of Israel. He said, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So this is God saying, anybody raises a finger against you, and this still in effect today, I will curse them. If you will go back and look throughout all of your history, and you will notice one thing that is just uh, tried and true. Any nation that befriends Israel tends to be blessed. And nations that defend Israel tend to be blessed. And nations that turn their back on Israel or abandon Israel, they are the ones that uh, tend to go the other way. Take a look at the British Empire. It was uh, just a generation before me that they would say the sun never sets on the British flag because the empire spanned the globe. Britain turned its back on the Jews, on Israel. And you know what happened? Their empire now is relegated basically to those few British isles. When you think about what happened to Germany after the uh, Holocaust... They're defeated in battle, they are decimated, and the country is divided for all of those years, half of it living under poverty and oppression under communism and uh, all of that. Think about all of the things you know. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. You know what God is saying? Hey, Israel, I will always be your defender. Well, that's not always true with an earthly king. An earthly king cannot always defend his people. In fact, the people will be fighting more to defend the king. And, by the way, how many good kings did the nation of Israel actually have as opposed to the bad kings and the invasions and the exiles and all of that? So, 
this is the warning coming through Samuel that a king's not really going to be able to defend you like the heavenly king would. In fact, you will be called upon to defend him. Okay, let's go to number two. You will be required to pay taxes to the king. That's verse 14 and verse uh, 15. When you think about what an earthly king is going to do, he is going to get his money. And that's going to be through taxation. Your flocks, your crops. And notice in there that we read the best of, the best of. See, the king is not going to look and say, uh, wait until you get all of the harvest in and then let's figure it out and I'll take, you know, just the minimal and I'll take the worst of things because I'm rich and wealthy and you're not and I want to help you. That is going to be rare if it ever happens. The king's going to take the best. The government's going to get it off of the top no matter what else is going to happen. And uh, we might look and say, well, you know, but God required tithes of the people. Um, if you're real uh, hung up on tithing, I've got some bad news for you. If you tithe like they did in the Old Testament, you're going to be giving somewhere close to 30% of your income, not just 10%, because they had more than one tithe. And uh, there was a tithe, of course, for religious purposes, supporting the, the priest and sacrifices and those kind of things. And then there was a, a tithe that basically funded the government. How would you like it maybe if our government just took 10%? Wouldn't that be something? And um, those type of things. And there was a, an, a tithe and there were different offerings and things for the poor and all of that. But um, that was a little bit different. Why was that different? Well, because everything belongs to God, right? He says in, I believe it's the book of Haggai, the silver is mine, the gold is mine. And we all know it says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. In other words, that's just God saying, I own it all. And God would require a tithe of his people in the Old Testament in Israel because that was a 10% reminder that 100% belongs to God. So it's not like, you know, I'll give you, you know, a little bit and you get off my back and I can do whatever I want with all the mine. We understand God owns everything, doesn't he? And so here's the deal. God would take from them in order to make them generous, to give them a heart like his, to remind them that everything belongs to him and that it also comes from him and it put them in a position of great blessing. In fact, the Bible says that far from God just taking from them, because we don't enrich God whenever we give, do we? We don't add to God. God's not sitting in heaven saying, I need money, I think I'll just take it out of my people. That's not really what it is. God has given Israel wealth. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Okay, this is Moses writing to the, uh, the ex-slaves just as they are getting ready to go in, that second generation, to go in and conquer the land of Canaan, right? You've got to remember this because the people are going to prosper and they're going to do well in their new land and Moses doesn't want them to forget God. God gives you the power to get wealth. Why does he do that? Well, he tells us that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. So God says, 
I'm the one that is actually going to enrich your life and give you wealth. But what is the earthly king going to do? He's going to confiscate that wealth. He's going to take it for himself, for his own purposes, for his own political advantages. I mean, some of that money that he took, some of the crops that he took, some of the animals that he took. Did you notice he's going to give it to his supporters, to his servants? And included in that would be any alliances that he might make with a foreign king. He may give gifts of your produce to that foreign king and you would have no say in it. As a contrast, God is the one who blesses. God is the one who empowers. God is the one who is the giver. You can never outgive God. Don't ever forget that. But not so with an earthly king. The third thing that uh, you will find in this is that you will be required to give your best to the king. Can't give leftovers to the king. You uh, can't go to uh, the king and say, well, had some expenses that came up this month and I just couldn't afford to give you everything that you require. You're going to give it. And you're not going to give just, you know, what might be convenient for you to give. You're going to give it off of the top and it's going to be the very best. And so you've got maybe a, a prize steer or something like that. And you were thinking, man, when I sell this thing, uh, it's going to bring me in a lot of money and I can remodel my house. Well, not if the king sees it first. The king is going to take the best. When you look at the wheat that you've grown and you're thinking, I've got X number of bushels of wheat and it's good wheat, I'm going to get the best price out of it. Man, I'm going to be able to get out of debt or pay for my kid's college. Not if the king sees it first. This is going to be something that he is going to take. And... The pattern is that if they don't take it up the first time and your crop comes in when it's all totaled up as being better than it was before, the king will be knocking at your door and they'll be taking more out of all of that. Because with the king, he's going to live well and his needs are going to be met in abundance and his bank accounts are going to be overflowing and everything's going to be going well for him. It always is with the government. And you are the one that's going to be left to try to suffer through all of this and try to muddle through and make it through and see your dreams destroyed and to see your goals having to be adjusted and your family having to pay the price because you will pay the taxes and they will be the best. Kings always take that. In contrast, have you ever noticed that God gives the best? You think about what God gave you when he gave you the sacrifice of his own son, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, God's own son, to pay for your sins. God didn't say, uh, let's go get a group of angels and let's crucify them or anything like that. He gave the very best. He always does. In fact, in Psalm 81, some of you will remember this from uh, almost a year ago on Wednesday night. Verse 11, But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts. See, sometimes, sometimes you get what you ask for to follow their own counsels, he says. Now listen to this plea from the heart of God. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies 
and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him, and their fate would be uh, their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest. See, there's the best. The finest of wheat. And with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. And that honey from the rock means God can make life sweet from some unexpected places. Why? Because he's sovereign. He rules. He reigns. And he's not only a great God. Always remember, he is a good God. And so for those of us who have trusted him and we have surrendered our lives to Christ and trusted in what Jesus did on the cross as the full payment for our sins, believing that he was raised from the dead and that he is Lord of all, God has a way of giving to you the sweetness in life that you never saw coming. He has a way of providing for you better than you could provide for yourself. I'm not talking about a silly prosperity gospel that feeds carnality and selfishness and all of that. I actually had someone say to me one time in a church, not this church, but in a church, and we were talking about some of the stuff. He kind of tended toward the word faith movement, and he said, look, the bottom line is I'll do whatever I have to do to get my prayers answered, even if I have to pray to the devil. Does that not send cold chills up and down your spine? But that's the way a lot of people look. How can I figure out biblical principles, claim biblical promises in order to get what I want, when I want it, the way that I want it? Well, be careful because God may grant that request and it'll be the worst thing that ever happened to you. But when God gives you his best, he not only gave you his best through his own son, the Lord Jesus, he gave you the best in sending his spirit to indwell you. He gave you the best by giving you his inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient, eternal word. And then you think about everything else that he does. God gives you his best sometimes by saying, no, you don't need that. See, if God doesn't provide it, then it's not required. And sometimes that's the best thing that could ever happen to you because he knows and he loves. And he doesn't fail to answer your prayers in the affirmative because he's angry or because he wants to hurt you. He does it because he knows what's best for you. And you can also know that whenever he does give it, and when he gives it, sometimes in abundance, far beyond anything we could ask or think, because he knows you're ready for it. And he knows that it's going to be a blessing to your life. In the book of Proverbs, it says that the Lord makes rich and adds no sorrow to it. For the world, when they make you rich, well, look at some of the famous people and famous families that you know of that have more money than they could ever spend. And look at the heartache and look at the agony and look at the families that they have. It's heartbreaking sometimes. This is where we've got to affirm our faith in God as our king and that we are the subjects in the kingdom and that we are in his family. We're a part of his body. Why do we uh, understand all of those things? Because we know God is great, as the little kids pray, and God is good. He knows what he's doing and he gives, gives the very best even when he says no, even to give you honey out of the rock, right? And number four, your freedom will be limited by the king. Did you notice that as we read through that? He takes, he takes, he takes, he assigns, he assigns, he assigns. You don't really have a whole lot of say. 
Now, the king may leave you alone. You know, there were some people in the kingdom that the king didn't know anything about, and they were out in the woods somewhere and uh, all of that, and they probably liked it that way. But uh, most of the people were known by the king. And if the king happened to notice a particular talent that your daughter had or that your son had or noticed that they would be good for his purposes, he just would take them. It's the way that it always would work. That's going to limit your freedom to some degree, isn't it? It also means that as he taxes you and takes your animals or takes your uh, crop, that's going to limit you too. You may have planned to do some things, as we said earlier, with that money, but not now. That's going to be limited. In fact, the king is going to control, to a large degree, what you buy and what you sell. That would all have to be approved by the king. Not just what's a good deal for you or a good deal for someone else. king has to approve it. And then it says in there very, very directly, you will be his slaves. Now, I know technically they wouldn't have the title of slave, but in function they would. You do what the king says, and you don't do what the king says don't do. It's all up to him. He rules. It was an absolute monarchy, right? And that's why so many of them got corrupt. Uh, Power corrupts, right? And absolute power corrupts absolutely. And they had absolute power and absolute control. Now, if you think about that, notice that God, what does he do to his people? God is the great deliverer. He's the great liberator. Jesus promised us that if we would know the truth, the truth would set us free, right? And he said that uh, when we know that truth, and if we're set free by him, the Son will make you free indeed. That's a new kind of freedom that they had never experienced. God wants to set you free. Notice that in Exodus chapter 20, where the Ten Commandments start, verses 1 and 2, God reminded them. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. What did he do? He set them free. And true freedom is being able to follow Christ. That's where you find the freedom. He paid for us when we were on the slave block, the marketplace of sin. Jesus is the one that came in and paid the price. And then what did he do? He's the one that took us off of the, uh, the, the marketplace of sin, took us out. And then when we got out of the marketplace of sin, what did he do? He set us free, took the chains off. And he said, now you're free, follow me. And that's the threefold idea of redemption. And so God is the liberator. And he wants his people, even when he lays down his law, he's saying, these thou shalt nots are really there because I am a God of freedom. And these things are going to free your life. They're going to keep your life from getting tangled up, jammed up, complicated, messed up. And so much of life now is so confusing and it's so entangled because we don't know what's right or wrong. And we've done so many things with our situational ethics that now it's coming back to bite us and we don't know what to do about it. Oh, if we would just follow God's ways and see the freedom, the freedom that God gives. So just wrapping this up. Just understand, government has the right to do these things. Notice that God did not say that anything the king is doing here is wrong or out of order. He's got the right. He's got the right. And if the king is righteous, well then, that's good. He uses his power righteously. 
But oh, if the king is unrighteous, like so many of them were, how terrible and how horrible it was. Proverbs 29.2 says, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice, but when the wicked man rules, the people groan. That's why uh, you need to pray about this election coming up in November, not just for the president, but uh, members of Congress and governors, mayors, whoever may be on the ballot, we need to vote properly. Because the Bible tells us, as we look again in uh, chapter 8, verse 7, And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. And they didn't know what they were getting. They didn't know what they were doing. Boy, it seemed like a good idea, didn't it? seem like a good idea. So just in conclusion, I want to encourage you to take these things and be a good steward of the freedom and the government that God has given you. Now, don't worship it, but use it and use it wisely. That means pray. Pray for your nation like never, ever before. Pray for your leaders, kings, and all who are in authority, as uh, Paul tell, uh, told Timothy. And then get wise information don't just follow what you see on TV or campaign ads or the little snippets you might hear somewhere or something you see on social media. Find out what the person stands for. Find out what they really believe. Find out who their advisors are. Sometimes that's the most important thing. The candidate will say anything to get elected. But when you see that they're surrounding themselves with communists, abortionists, um, people that want to destroy the family and marriage and all of that kind of stuff, well, then you know the way the candidate's going to go if he or she is elected. Watch out for those things. And then make sure that you get out and vote. Uh, in the 2016 election, uh, there was something like uh, 50 million evangelical Christians that didn't even bother to vote. Boy, that's a game changer if we could get God's people to express themselves at the ballot box, right? And above all, exalt Jesus, surrender to him as your king, and never look to anyone or anything else to meet your needs. You don't ever want your life to start off with our Father which art in Washington. We don't want to do that. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And that's where it all starts, and that's where we need to uh, stay. So I hope this encourages you and causes you to think a little bit, especially as we are in an election year. And with all the confusion around us, let's remember humans are depraved. All of them, even the best of them, are depraved. Let's not expect anything out of depraved human beings that they're incapable of. And let's always remember to look above and beyond them to our King who sits on the throne in heaven, who reigns on high, the one who always does what is good. Praise be to his name. Thank you so much and God bless you.